Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, which we will not be in this morning. <laughs> I thought I'd say that. Thank you, Billy, for that report. I am not one of those that seed my time, no, so bear with me this morning as we will, we will go and get what we need to get done this morning. Uh, we're in Matthew chapter 5, we're dealing with the Sermon on the Mount, and we're part of this, it's, it's kind of, I feel echoey, is it just me? It's not me, I can't, Ben, it's a little hotter, Stephen, it's a little hot, so tone me down because I hear me, there we go, okay, um, here, oh, that's a cheating slide, um, we're, we're in the Sermon on the Mount, the Sermon on the Mount is not law for today, and we're going to reissue some of these ideas next week. Here's what's happened. I've spent um, countless hours. I'm not going to give you a number because I don't know the, the, the official number. But hours on one verse this week. And you're going to get hit with it hopefully next week. Next week is two days after Hall- uh, Halloween. After Valentine's Day. And I'm going to deal with divorce. So pray for your pastor. <laughs> So that's that's what you got next week. So here's what we're dealing with. We're looking at the Sermon on the Mount, and the Sermon on the Mount deals with an ethic that's needed for the time the Hebrew people were to be uh, a nation that is righteous. And how would that go when they had dealt with pharisaical law for so long that basically had a different line of righteousness, which is more an exterior, external type of righteousness. Not It didn't come from the heart outward. And Jesus has got to deal with some issues that was predominant in his time. And what happens, and I've seen a lot of it, next week I'll play a short video because uh, I think it's pr- uh, uh, prudent that we do so, that see that how people use the Sermon on the Mount and abuse it to say this is needed for today, and if you don't do this, you're not saved. And I go, wait, this has nothing to do with salvation. We're in the gospel according to Matthew in the Sermon on the Mount, and he's not preaching the gospel of his death, burial, and resurrection. Jesus is teaching the gospel of the kingdom. And last week, we, we kind of left off in a, in a weird place. So I'm going to start in verse 21, and I'm going to read Matthew 5:21. I'm going to stop where we left off, and we're going to do a real quick side issue to this morning on, on Proverbs and James. So you're going to hit would be hit with that. But it says, You have heard the ancients were told you shall not commit murder. Whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. According to uh, the Mosaic law and the covenant there, you will be put to death for that. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. And whoever shall say to his brother, Raka, uh, shall be guilty before the Supreme Court. And whoever shall say you fool shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. If therefore you are presenting your offering at the altar, and and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave it, your offering, there before the altar, and go your way. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and present your offering. Make friends quickly with your opponent at law while you are with him on the way, in order that your opponent may not deliver you to the judge, and the judge to the officer, and you'll be thrown into prison. Truly I say to you, you shall not come out of there until the la- you have paid the last cent. Now I'm going to say something. It gets very confusing to go through the Sermon on the Mount trying to figure out how that fits into today. It doesn't. Stop doing that. 
we got to understand who Jesus was speaking to and the crowd he's speaking to. And I brought up some of the information that was given in verse 22 last week, and we ended with that. And I want to go back and visit some of these ideas in Proverbs 6, 16 through 19. So go to Proverbs 6, 16 through 19. And then we're going to go to James. And I believe parts of James is an expansion on the Sermon on the Mount. So... Uh, we are not teaching through the book of James. We're teaching through the book of Matthew. But I just want you to see some things that will help. And I, oh, here it is. Okay. Um, so we haven't, here's where we're jumping to. I read it last week. I want to kind of dissect it a little bit this morning. It says in verse 16, there are six things the Lord hates. Yes, seven things are an abomination to him. And I think that should get our ears open to know these are the things the Lord hates. So if you're doing this, stop it. Okay. He hates haunty eyes, lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked, wicked plans, feet that run rapidly to evil, a false witness who utters lies, and one who spreads strife among his brothers. Now, if you just read those, you've got most of these in the Sermon on the Mount. So we, it's the forefront of what we're dealing with. Now, uh, I'm not going to tell you who said something to me after church last week, Linda, um, but she was, she was jumping boat because she doesn't know that I was going to deal with this. I want to deal with some uh, things that have to do with Proverbs 6, 16 through 19 that are uh, deal with the tongue. Deal with the tongue because we left off in Matthew 5.22. If you say to your brother Raka or call him a fool, how are you using your language? So we're just going to look at some uh, uh, importance of using your tongue properly. Just kind of food for thought. Words are, are uh, tremendously or enormously important. What you say is important. According to Proverbs 18.21, life and death is in the tongue. Life and death is in the tongue. By consequences of what you see, uh, say, you can often say, I wish I could have eaten my words. Anybody ever say that? No. Nobody? Just me? I'm the one that's full of my own words? <laughs> you ever say something and want to take it back right after you said it? I would love to tell you a story, but I can't. But all I could give you is the reaction of the guy I was talking to. He was doing this. Because who I was talking about was in the other aisle of the store we were in. And he saw them, and he said, and that's when you first want to go, you go, first of all, you go about this tall, and then you start chewing on your words, and you keep, there's nothing you could do. You can't put it back in. And since I am a, a teacher now, I say more words than most of you say, and I've got a, I don't know, I've got a few, about ten of you that will say, hey, you you used the wrong word. Yeah, yeah, I know that. Secondly, why are words so powerful? First of all, and we're just going to stay within Proverbs, so we're going to look a little bit in Proverbs. First of all, they're extremely penetrating. What you say cuts like a knife. Look at Proverbs chapter 12. Proverbs chapter 12, and I've got to go the right way myself. And if you know anything about the book of Proverbs, it's a father trying to help his son, guidance in life, and he says this in Proverbs 12, verse 18. He says, There is one who speaks rashly like the thrust of a sword, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. So you can actually use your tongue and cut people, stab them, and... Uh, 16, Proverbs chapter 16, verse 24. Pleasant words are a honeycomb, sweet to the soul and healing to the bones. Sweet words. 
Sometimes some are too sticky sweet, but that's nice. 18.8 says this, The words of a whisperer are like dainty morsels. They go down uh, into... I'll be all right. Into the innermost parts of the body, it's it's depth that it brings. Proverbs eleven nine, with his mouth the godless man destroys his neighbor, but with but through knowledge the righteous will be delivered. So uh, it's 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 neat to see these things that Proverbs is saying. These are things you could do uh, that would advance a proper way of life. So first of all, words are powerful because they're extremely penetrating. Secondly. Words are powerful because words reproduce themselves. The more, it's like, it's, it's like a, what, like the coronavirus. It spreads quickly and rapidly. And it, and it has, a, uh, again, a, a ill effect in, in chapter 16, verse 27. It says, a worthless man digs up evil, while his words are a scorching fire. A perverse man spreads strife, and a slanderer separates in, intimate friends. That's what words will do. And some people are really good at using the words to bring and separate people apart and to bring damage. So these two are, are off the bat are very important. Thirdly, thirdly, there's weakness in words. There's weakness in words. Words don't substitute for action. I, I, I'm going to say something that one of the things that bugs me the most, uh, and, and Billy may have to disregard some of this, People have told me, when they hear certain things, I'll pray for so-and-so. Well, I'm one of those guys, once in a while, we got to do for so-and-so. Because prayers are what? Prayers are good, but I don't trust any of you. So if I call all t- you know, ten of you and say, pray for me, I'm going by the law of averages since I'm a really bad guy, and I'm going to say, one will pray for me. The others are going to say, yes, pastor, we'll pray for you, but... Don't forget. You know, I don't know why. We're all human. I've done it. And sometimes we've got to put some shoe leather there. And Proverbs 14.23 says this. In all labor there is profit, but mere talk leads only to poverty. I think that's pretty good. Uh, Sometimes words are what? Just words. And... um, just like I told my boss years ago when he said, I'm going to get you a raise, and I go, I'll see it when it's in my paycheck. Otherwise, you promise and promise, and it hasn't happened. So until I actually see it, they're just words. And we, we've got to be careful how we use our words. Uh, they also can't, uh, with the weakness of words, they cannot compel a response. I can say certain things, but I can't make you say something back. According to Proverbs 29, verse 19, a slave will not be instructed by words alone, for though he understands, there is no response. So we want, you know, I don't know how many times you can talk to somebody and you're trying to elicit some kind of response and get nothing. And say, is this person even paying attention? So words do have a weakness. So we have the importance of words, they're powerful, their weaknesses. Words are also deceptive. Words are deceptive, often used to cover up things, to give excuses, to lie about situations. And uh, as a young kid, uh, uh, playing in the streets of South Florida, we used to break a lot of windows. I think we were trying to set a record of how many windows we could break, and every parent on that block would say to us, can't you go play at the schools? We'd say, yes, we can. 
but we didn't. Okay, and I used to have in, in my utility room in South Florida, I had a stack of jealousy glass window panes, about 20 deep and seven rows. I'm not kidding. They were to replace the neighbor's windows. My dad would stockpile them. My dad would stockpile. My mom even said to me once in my backyard, don't do anything but bunt. You don't say that to a 12-year-old. Bunting's no fun. Do you know you could put a basketball through a, through a bay window? And why am I telling these stories? Because what happens is often we do these things and we got to say, I didn't do it, he did it. What often happens is, if you're not the fastest kid in the block, <laughs> you are the one that did it. So I had to have the glass to cover it. And oftentimes when we look at the idea of how that tongue is used to cover things, look at Proverbs 26, verse 23. Proverbs 26, 23 says, Like an earthen vessel overlaid with silver dross are burning lips and a wicked heart. 28, 24 adds to that by saying, He who robs his father and his mother and says it is not a transgression is the companion of a man who destroys you're taking from your mother and father and say, well, that's not a sin. It's my stuff. Because why? I'm going to inherit it one day. I can use it ahead of time. It's not how this works. And that's the deceptiveness of words. But here, I want to talk about the other side. What marks good words? What, what do we want to see out of ourselves as we use our tongue? And that's what I think Jesus is kind of leaning to in the Sermon on the Mount, because you don't want to be calling people fool and raka and all that stuff, because that's just going to lead to something, an action that's dangerous. So what's the, what's, first of all, let's be honest. You ever hear somebody say, I want to be honest with you? What's your first reaction? What have you been before this? This is the first... But we want people to say yes for their yeses and no for their noes. Wouldn't that be a wonderful world if people were actually honest with you? Not to a fault, because we want to be careful. But, uh, you know, uh, it's hard. I've been a husband for 35 years, and my wife says, does this look good on me? Don't put me up in situations I can't handle, because I want to be honest. I don't know. I don't know. I'm dumb, right? Men want to say, I don't know. So sometimes we're asked questions we shouldn't answer, and sometimes we're asked questions we should answer, but God wants us to be honest, and that's what Solomon was looking for in his son. So we're in 28, verse 23, says this, He who rebukes a man will afterward find more favor than he who flatters him with the tongue. Sometimes we've got to say, this is it. This is it. Um, you know, it's hard when people uh, need to be honest with you, and you can't handle the honesty. Uh, I think that was in a movie, right? Once? The movie says, truth, you can't handle the truth. And some people can't, but we should be as truthful as we can. Look at 24, verse 26. He, he, he kisses the lips who gives a right answer, an honest answer. Uh, I, I believe some versions will say, uh, in regard... Um, the right answer has to do with being an honest answer. I think the King James is an honest answer. I, I think that's good. Uh, that's what we're looking for. Uh, what, what else is a mark of good words? Now, please, don't anybody take this personal, but take it personal. Few words. Select words. The right words. Um, 
I used to, when I used to read uh, outside books, I wanted to find books that the author really chose the right words that were succinct and clear and really drove home his points. And, and there's very few authors out there because they use way too many words to say, hey, this one word would have solved the whole issue. And I think as we look at these things, uh, when we're talking about few words, sometimes just get to the point, you know? Just get to the point. Um, I'm not going to use any of my kids as an example because I love my kids and I don't want to. I want to be able to live life peacefully. But I would say some people need to just get to the point. Okay, just especially with me. I don't know how you all are, but I don't need a long story to tell me the you know house is on fire. Just go put it out. You know, I was, you know, you don't want to hold the whole story that led to burning it down. So sometimes we need to get to the point. Um, Proverbs 17:28 says, "Even a fool, when he keeps silent, is considered wise." Anybody ever heard that before? Uh, you can always tell somebody who's stupid: the more he talks, the stupider he becomes. That's the opposite of that. When he when he closes his lips, he is counted as prudent. So the wise thing to do is keep silent sometimes. In chapter 10, verse 4, excuse me, 10:14. 10.14, it says, Wise men store up knowledge, but the mouth of the foolish, ruin it is at hand. So, again, uh, now, here's just a point in fact, okay? I look at it like this. God gave us two ears and one mouth. You know, you know what the, right? What to, Listen twice as much as you speak. And I think that goes for any of us. If we talk about somebody, how about pray for them twice as much as you talk about them? And that would make your prayer life a little different, wouldn't it? Um, look at verse 19, same chapter. Chapter 10, verse 19. When there are many words, transgression is unavoidable. But he who restrains his lips is wise. In other words, you just keep talking something, you're going to run yourself into a, into a bad place. And sometimes we need to be careful. How? Thirdly, that a mark of good words is restrained. Restrained. Uh, why restrained? And I think that... In, Let's go to Proverbs 17:27. He says, "It says, he who restrains his words has knowledge, but he who has a cool spirit is a man of understanding." So, why restrained words? And I think this is really a good, probably one of the best points I have. Restrained words. First of all, it takes time to collect facts. We just don't want to react. We want facts. And uh, again, the pro- proverbist says it in 18:13. He says, "He who gives an answer before he hears." It is folly and shame to him. In other words, get the facts. Know what you're talking about or what you're dealing with before you, and have all the facts that are at hand for that situation. Verse 17 says, The first to plead his case seems just until another comes and examines him. In other words, be patient, get the facts. So first of all, a restrained tongue requires facts. Do I, have, I think that I have better. Secondly, oh, no, 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 don't, don't. Secondly, uh, it gives us time, time for our tempers to cool. Remember, in Matthew, we're talking about people who get angry and their tempers build and then they end up murdering somebody. It's equivalent to that because Christ says your attitude matters. And if you look at this, it's, it takes time for your tempers to cool. Sometimes somebody says something and you're reacting Instead of giving it time to cool, Proverbs 15.1 says, A gentle answer, answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stir up anger. So you can actually make somebody more angry 
or they have a choice, but you can anger the situation by, by heaping coals on the fire that's already started by saying too much in the situation. Thirdly, why is it restrained? Restrained words said in the right way are very potent. And I think it's important to say certain things in a very potent way. And, and as we step back from a situation and build an understanding of what's going on, we don't get heated and allow our mouth to just run ragged. We can find the right words that are more poignant than the words we would have chosen in reaction. Proverbs 25, verse 15 says, By forbearance a ruler may be persuaded, and a soft tongue breaks the bone. I love that. You know, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. That's a lie. I don't know who came up with that one. That's a lie. Because I've been hit with the biggest of people, and I, it hurts. You shake it off, and you go, let's go do this again. And stupid boys get hit again. Okay? But if you say the wrong words, I'll remember them forever. They hurt. Right? And we want to make sure when we say the words, the right words, they get the right reactions and carry the day. Fourthly, uh, words, honest words or good words are always what? Appropriate words. Always appropriate. Saying the right thing. You know, here's, a, here's an interesting thing. People have, have said right things and at the wrong time, and what happens? Or they said the wrong thing at the right time, what happens? We want to be able to do both, put them both together. Say the right things at the right time. And Proverbs 10.32 says this. Almost read the whole book so far, right? It's interesting how much God has to say about the tongue, the lips, the words. Verse 32, 10.32 says, The lips of the righteous bring forth what is acceptable, but the mouth of the wicked what is perverted. And I think that's to the point, that we want to say the right things, the appropriate things. Uh, 15.23 A man has joy in an apt answer, and how delightful is a timely word. A timely word. You ever have somebody come up to you and say the perfect thing at the perfect time and you say, thank you. Isn't that great? That's when you got to mark down. Boy, God's using that person. A person's allowing God to be to use them. And I, and I would love another uh, tidbit from them as the appropriate word comes out. Uh, it's interesting. 16.1 says, The plans of the heart belong to a man, but the answer of the tongue is, is from the Lord. So if you're... In God's plan, you can be answering God's words with people as we as we look at this. Uh, 25.11. 25.11. It's like sword drill, isn't it? But we're in one book. Verse 11 says, Like apples of gold in the settings of silver is a spoken word in right circumstances. Wow. We could, So far we can nail a bunch of these up in the bathroom window, right? The mirror in the bathroom, we just say, here, these are the ones I need to see constantly before us. Um, here's, here's one that's fun. How about thinking before speaking? Forethought before speaking. I, I don't know about you all, but I've got a problem with that. Because that's just the nature of who I am. And I and sometimes I say things, and it may be appropriate or inappropriate, but I've got to stop back, step back for a minute and say, let me think about what I'm going to say. Not only that, how I say it. You ever said something and say, that was perfect. 
Great words. And the person turns around and they look irritated and upset at you or whatever might be their, you know, their recoil. And you say, what did I say wrong? No, that's not how I said it. That's not how I, or that's not how I meant it. But that's how it was received. So sometimes we got to know our audience. Proverbs 15, uh, 28 says this. The heart of the righteous ponders how to answer, but the mouth of the wicked pours out evil things. In other words, there's no thinking. There's no thinking going on there. So that's my tidbits from Proverbs as we, as we dealt with some things. But I want to give you some verses, and we're going to go over to James chapter 3. So everybody can flip over to James chapter 3. So here's some verses to kind of segue into that. Matthew 15, 19 and 20 says, For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornication, thefts, false witnesses, and slanders. Do you all see this right here? If you, de- if you can't, copy and paste it over the Sermon on the Mount. So it gives you an idea what Jesus is dealing with. He's dealing with the heart of the matter. He's not dealing with uh, any commands to do these things, which is fascinating, right? Because we talked about in the first class, these are commands to do these things. We need to do these things because they're in commands. Jesus isn't giving commands. He's just telling you the way it is. This is how the law is. And this is where it comes from. Now, if you look at all these things, well, let's read verse 20. These are the things which defile the man. But to, And he's talking about eating with unwashed hands. Now, I don't know if you all eat with unwashed hands. I, I really don't care what your personal hygiene's like. But the Pharisees did. To them, that was... The law from God, wash your hands before you eat, um, which is probably good for those in the, any area that with viruses and other things going on. Um, but the idea here is, here's what Jesus is getting to. What's the heart of the matter? So, next verse, it says, for within, and it's so important, Mark also duplicates it, but he does more. For within, for for. For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed the evil thoughts, fornication, thefts, murders, adulteries, deeds of coveting and wickedness, as well as deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these things proceed from within a man and defile the man. That's, that's interesting, because this morning we were talking about what, what, we, what we take our body into, which is sexual morality, but this is just all, all the... All the stuff inside. And to add to that, Matthew 22, where we left off last week, says, But I say to you that anyone, everyone who is angry with his brother, inside or out, this is from within the heart, shall be guilty before the court. Now, how do you know if you're, someone's angry with a brother that you can take him to court? You don't know, because Jesus is using what? Hyperbole. Just saying, if you're that angry, you should be, it's, a, it's, an, it's an offense to God. And whoever says to his brother, you good for nothing. I took it from a different, I like that, you good for nothing. Uh, instead of raka. Uh, shall be guilty before the Supreme Court. And whoever says you fool shall be guilty enough to go into fiery hell. Now we all know, we all know this, right? The penalty to go to hell is what? Unbelief in, in the Lord, right? In this day and age, in that day and age too, it was unbelief because uh, John 3.36 was written, if you don't believe, you're go, you're go ahead. But what he's saying is, it's so condemnable what you're doing from within. And outwardly, the Pharisees would say, no, we're not, we're righteous. And the verses before this said what? Your righteousness has to exceed that of the Pharisees. And outwardly, you'd look at a Pharisee and say, that's the cream of the crop. Okay, so let's go to James. 
James chapter 3. Why James? James has got some special issues with people. Now, if I was doing the book, now I would, if I was really doing the book, I would tell you the name of the book is not James. The name of the book is Jacob. That's his name. He is the brother, half brother of the Lord. Okay, and he calls himself a bond servant to Christ. Okay, you with me so far? And he's got issues. And here, I believe James is a watcher of people. You ever sit and watch people? Nobody does that? I love watching people. I think it's a fascinating sport. It should be professionally given licenses to people that are good at it. And I'm really good at watching people. I grew up, my best friend's dad worked for Pan Am Airlines. Remember Pan American? Anybody? Everybody? And we'd have to take him to the airport. And we get, back then you could actually stay in the airport. And back then there was Harry Krishnas. And I was 17. And I thought it was fun to talk with them and torture them or whatever I could possibly do. But, but I'd watch them for hours. It was fascinating, these Fruit Loop type people. I don't know what they were. I couldn't classify them. And they were always selling flowers. I didn't know where they got them from and they didn't grow them. It was just, they were weird. The point is, I watched people. And I said, you know something? When I read the book of James, I said, he's my brother. He's watching people. And here's what he observed. James chapter 3, verse 1. My brethren, do not hold your faith... Uh, sorry, verse, that's chapter 2. We'll be all right. Chapter 3. Let not many of you become teachers. Let not many... Why? Because he said, I've been watching you all. And you're, you're, they're believers because he said, My brethren, knowing that as such, we shall incur a stricter judgment. James says, I'm a teacher too. For we all stumble in many ways. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able to bridle the whole body as well. So what we're, what we're looking at here is um, works. James is going to deal with works, but he's aiming at what we say as the beginning of the process. How much of, of what we say really influences what we're doing or what we're doing influence what we're saying you kind of with me here so here's the first one first of all the teacher does a lot of talking and the teachers that do a lot of talking obviously they don't have an economy of words and it's fair in this case to deal with teachers first teachers say a lot of things i don't care what kind of teacher it is not just bible teachers but teachers in general um, school teachers would they say a lot it's just the nature of the beast. If you're coaching, you say a lot. If you're teaching uh, any, anything, you're saying a lot. And basically, there's a stricter judgment that's going to come upon us because we don't have an economy of words. And there's many times Sunday afternoon, I will sit down and say, I can't believe I said that. How do I take that back? Not that I said a mistake or biblically incorrect, but I just said something stupid. You know, and I'll probably go back this week and say, "Why well, say anything about the glass I broke? It cost my parents a fortune for a while." Uh, by the way, we probably did set records because there was cars involved, and there was anyway. Point is, that's a record I don't think anybody needs to break. Um, but what I want you to understand, it comes first because of the predominance of that time of what teachers did. Secondly, the tongue reveals two things in all of us. The tongue reveals two things in in all of us, and um, We've already read it. Uh, oh, that what? 
Okay. I don't know how I missed this. Okay. So here's the two things it reveals. First of all, our level of maturity. Now, I know there was a show years ago, and probably another one that came out. I can't remember if, how long it stayed on TV. Art Linkletters talks to the kids. Anybody remember that? And kids say what? The darndest things. And I used to love that because it was funny to ask these kids. And kids are great to work with. They say the craziest things. And sometimes there's certain ages you shouldn't work with, but kids are great because they'll just unload freely on you. But you also look at a kid and say, he's just a kid. I don't expect to hear that out of a 30 or 40 year old guy. And if that's happening, it's a level of maturity. And spiritual maturity is actually based upon the tongue. Secondly, it also reveals our self-control. Can you control what you say? That's tough, isn't it? You know, um, can you control the tongue? And we're going to talk about if if you can control the tongue, you've actually bridled the whole body. Control of speech is the utmost importance. And here's the interesting thing: Can you curtail what you should not say? Can you stop it? Or to just come out. Thirdly, to recognize in James this subject is predominant. In James, James is dealing a lot with the tongue. Because James assumes we know basic doctrines. He is looking at conduct that flows from an understanding. In James chapter 1 verse 19 he says, Be slow to speak. Slow in relation to what? I mean, if you look over there, verse 19, it says, slow to speak. And I go, in relation to what? Because he said, be quick to hear. I think that's pretty obvious. If he wants us to be slow to speak and quick to hear, how about double the intake before you have the output? Now, I have a program that will tell you how many words most people speak per minute. I don't know if I'm setting a record. But Because when I type things out, I want to say, how long will it take me to do this if I type this out? So the program says the average person, the average person, 125 to 150 words a minute, speaks. Just speak, running on, you know, kind of thing. Now, I'm not saying some of those are more exuberant in their words and average. Uh, that's not a lot. That's not even that fast. And some of you say, Pastor, you speak fast. I've measured it. I'm at 130. You, you listen slow. <laughs> that's how I'm going by but the problem is and this is what sometimes happens is A, people have accents you ever heard somebody with an accent say you talk funny I got one fourth of what you just said I know you're speaking English you're English but I'm not getting it Okay, so accents play a part if you ever have a conversation with someone with broken English whether they second, third language or somebody that's Scottish or British you're going to what are they saying? And are they even speaking English? Um, and I grew up in an environment with a lot of broken English. Okay, Hispanics are great. I, you know, you, and if you learn to speak English like they do, you have a great conversation. But you got to throw in every few minutes a Spanish word just to keep them, keep yourself safe. You always say like "manana," "manana," "hasta luego." Yeah, let's go. Nobody knows who that is. Let's go eat. That's good. You guys got 20 minutes. Um, but you got you to you understand, slow to speak doesn't mean never say anything. It means have, have good intake uh, first. Uh, in James chapter 2, James says this in verse 12. 
So speak and so act as though who, those who are will be judged by the law of liberty. In other words, <coughs> what he's saying is, your wor- our words will be measured by God. God's going to measure our words. In ver- back to verse 26, 126 says, If anyone thinks himself to be religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his own heart, this man, his religion is worthless. So it, it kind of is a, is a mediator, a, a kind of guide to how much you're saying and what you're saying. So if we look at James chapter 3, which we're in, it's kind of an exposition of James 119. So James says this in 119 and says in chapter 3, I'm going to elaborate more on it. So we should be slow to speak. The tongue has tremendous power. Uh, James 3 is an exposition of James 119. I did put that in there. The importance of the tongue. What's the importance of the tongue? I think this is uh, where I really want to go this morning because I'm going to go do the whole chapter in five minutes, hopefully. And then we're going to go to chapter 5 of Matthew. First of all, the importance of the tongue. Uh, as related to teaching, um, as we look at this in verse 1, James chapter 1, he says, Don't let many of you become teachers. Now let me explain to you this word become. That means you were something beforehand, and now you're going to change your occupation. And I was told this when I was becoming a pastor years ago. The guy had told me that, can you do anything else? I go, yeah, I can do a lot of things. He goes, go do them. Now, that wasn't when I became a postman. It was years into that. But he said, go do something else. I go, why? He goes, it's, it's not what you think it is. To become a teacher is one of the most difficult things. And last week, I will tell you how difficult it was. I dealt with one word all week for about 60 hours. And I was on the phone two hours yesterday with a friend of mine. And now he's up all night probably trying to deal with it. It is difficult sometimes. Things that happen within the ministry is difficult. Things that happen uh, within what we call the pastorship is incredibly difficult. But if, you, if that's all God puts in your heart, just do it. Uh, but but first of all, what he's saying is they became teachers. They were something before that. So everyone that's a teacher was something before it at some point. We know so from Scripture that teachers are vital. From Acts chapter 13, verse 1, 1 Corinthians 12, 28, and also from Ephesians 4, 11, that tells that pastors and teachers basically are one identity. It's not pastors and teachers. It's pastor-teachers. Uh, when I first ran into a guy years ago, and I said, he goes, what, what, what do you want me to call you? I go, Eric. That works well. I, my mom was doing it for years. I figured somebody else could do it too. And he says, no, no, no. What is your title? Are you reverend? Are you pastor? I go, well, I'm really a pastor teacher. He to this day will not look at me and not call me pastor teacher. It's, it's locked in his mind because I said, I, I, but I'm still Eric to him. He's uh, been a dear friend for years. But he calls me, that he'll, he won't see me for years, and he'll see me. Hey, right, pastor, teacher. I was Skyping with his granddaughter the other day, and, and he says, he was in the background, he goes, hey, pastor, teacher. I go, are you serious? Are you serious? Um, but, it's, but it's interesting to know that the scripture says how important the pastor, teacher is to the congregation, to the church of God. And that's in Ephesians chapter 4. So teaching is a great responsibility. Therefore, uh, they must be limited uh, to who they are. And notice that James says, not many become. He doesn't say not any. And he doesn't say not all of you. He says not many. Cause there's, and, and I want you to understand something, and I realize this. Uh, 
there's a stricter judgment to it, according to verse 1. And um, we're accountable for our words. Verse 2 says, as related to the reality of life. The reality of life. The reality of life says this. We all stumble, and most of our stumbles happen by what we say. And I don't know, I don't care what you say. We're going to go into marriage, divorce, and some odds and ends next week in the Sermon on the Mount. And I don't care what a husband or wife says. Uh, a husband can be the most dangerous person in the room when he's trying to be the nicest. And the wife could be the most dangerous person in the room when she's just trying to be honest. Okay? And that's just the nature of the beast because we take things more personal from certain people. Some people can call me whatever name they want to, and I go, duck. You know what a duck is, right? It just hit me and ran right off my back. I don't care. But something my wife or even my kids can say, I go all day long, I'm saying, what made them say that? What kind of a person am I? Am I really that kind of... Really? Really? No. And I'm going to spend the whole day trying to prove them wrong. And then they'll look at me, why are you taking it so serious? Oh, I wasn't supposed to? Well, words are like that. Do you realize every fight, every fight begins with the mouth and every war begins with the second person opening up their mouth? That's why, again, James says, be slow to speak. The concept of anger is involved in that. It's the root of the problem is the mouth. It starts in the mouth. Look at chapter 4, verse 1. I love James because he's brutally honest. He says, what is the source of your quarrels and conflicts among you? This is the church. He's writing this to believers, probably the early church, mostly Jewish people. And he said, why can't you all get along? Listen, is not the source... Your pleasures that wage war in your members, you lust and do not have, so you commit murder. What? The church is killing each other. I once said this a long time ago, and I'm going to stick to my guns. The church is the only hospital that kills its victims. It does. It's notorious for that. Somebody will always have a story. Oh, I don't want to go to that place. There's a bunch of hypocrites. You don't know what happened to me. I was in the church for this amount of time, and this is what happened. And I say, yeah, you're right. They're horrible people. But they are people with sin natures just like you, and you're a bigger hypocrite because you won't go back. You know, and that honesty usually gets the door shut in my face, but (laughs) such is that. Um, But when we look at the realities of life, it usually starts with the mouth, mouth, and that's a dangerous thing. Thirdly, let's talk about the generalities of life in general. We offend. The idea here to stumble is literally to trip. Uh, to stumble morally is to sin. We all, every one of us, every one of us sins in what area? What area do you sin? I know this is personal. Don't raise your hand. Don't fill out a card. Don't tell me. But what area do you sin? Uh, and we would say, many areas. Many things we sin in. And I would say, yes, sir. But you know, we don't all sin in the same area. But I will say this, a a general reality is that we all of us sin in many different ways, and it's usually with your mouth. But here he gets specific. But James gets very specific in chapter 3, verse 2. He says, um, let's do the specific. Um, In word, in word. By the lack of controlling what we say, a lot of things we say shouldn't have been said. And if anyone stumbles in what he says... He is 
not he's not a mature man. He's not perfect. He's not maturing. What we have are pe- have people, and let's ask it this way: Have people ever reached a place of maturity? And can you tell how they speak? I think they go together, and I think that's a biblical thing. Uh, just let's look, let's look at some words real quick that are used for. We're just going to go through some biblical words used for the tongue. First of all, diabolos. Many of you have heard that word used for who? Satan, right? Satan's the diabolos, uh, uh, the devil, right? Um, it's, it basically means slanderous, false accuser, the adversary, the devil. Uh, again, it's interesting, this is used 34 times for the title of the devil. What's the devil use against us? His mouth. His, he uses the word of God, misuses it. Only three times is it used for believers in 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus. And the word is translated malicious gossips. Anybody know malicious gossips? They rule the church for years. People would deal with all sorts of sins in the church and forget the person that started was the one that was talking about it and never dealt with him or her. And that's that's the place. It's interesting. Only place in the New Testament that's used for speech sins are about believers who are women. Do with what you want with that. I know if I go too much on that, I'm going to be in trouble because this word, dialogos, is basically for men. Men are double-tongued. I don't know if you know that. Men often say things and don't do them. Men will say two different things to two different people. Their stories change from fish stories to whatever other stories they come up with. And men are double-tongued. They're not sincere. They're deceitful. Now, I'm not saying, Mama, don't let your girls grow up to, to marry that kind of man, but that just happens, right? And how do we deal with it? We're going to talk about that in a minute. Blasphemia. Uh, basically, blasphemy, evil speaking, slander, reviling. This is again addressed in Scripture. These have to do with in Ephesians 4:31, Colossians 3:8. They're all sins of the tongue. Sins of the tongue. I know you're all writing it down. I see pens just flying. My next word is real fun. Epipleiso. It's a verb to strike or rebuke. Basically, it means you can smite people, hit them so hard that your words are like a fist. It's, it, it does deal with the way we say words and use words, but it also has to do in 1 Timothy 6.4 with the abusive language we often use. And I'm not saying, you know, everybody says, well, that guy's profane and uses horrible profanity. That's not what it's talking about. It's talking about things that are abusive. You know, I, I'm going to tell you something. I grew up in a day and age, there's a lot of fathers who were abusive and never touched their kids. But they said some of the most nastiest things, and I've heard some nasty things. Um, not from my dad. I, I'm praise God. I had a great dad. He was My dad was a closet comedian. You'd find him 5 o'clock in the morning, he'd shoot you one-liners, and out the door he went to work. That was all I got from my dad. Somebody once said, you have dad issues. I go, no, he's just dad. I don't have dad issues. I, I got people issues, but dad wasn't one of them. He was, my dad understood as a teacher, my dad was a high school teacher, the economy of words and to say them right. I don't know where he learned it from. He sure didn't learn it from my uh, grandfather, but that's besides the point. Um, let's, let's go through these real fast. This is the rest of chapter 3 that I want to deal with. Here's the metaphors used for the tongue. Verse 12 says, that, uh, verse, verse 4, 3, I'll get it all right. 
We're going to 12. Go verse, John, uh, James 3.3 3 says, Now if we put a bit into the horse's mouth so that they may obey us, we direct their uh, entire body. So a bit in a horse's mouth. Now if anybody's ever done horse riding, you better put that bit in his mouth because otherwise he's in control. Once that bit's shoved in the back of his mouth and you pull on it, that horse is a listening horse. Right? Anybody ever done any horseback riding? That's a listening... I'm going to tell you something. I had a beast of an animal when I was 15 that they made me ride. Its name was Peanut. Not the name for this horse. This this horse, listen, I wasn't a tall 15-year-old, but I needed a little stepladder to get up on Peanut. I didn't need much to get off of Peanut because Peanut would throw you off. And I was determined, I hate horseback riding to this day because of Peanut, but I was determined I would hold on and what I would do is grab those reins and pull in a bit just snug enough because if you pulled the right, you were going, what, north on a southbound train. And I'd pull back and i say, I'm in charge. If you don't believe it, I'm in charge. Okay? But think about that. When we talk about bits in a horse's mouth, is the tongue that much in charge? And, the, and, and the, James realized it is. Verse 4 says, Behold, the ships also, though they are so great and are driven by strong winds, are directed by a very small rudder wherever the inclination of the pilot is. Do you realize, have anybody ever seen some super liner ships? They got propellers that are from huge propellers to move that thing, and and not one. They got multiple engines and multiple, uh, but the the rudders in comparison are like maybe they're little things. And some of them, I know some somebody's going to come up and say, well, they use jets to push them this way. And I know I know all that stuff. But the point is, the rudders very small compared to the ship itself. Uh, then, then in verse 5, it goes on, So also the tongue is a small part of the body, and yet it boasts great things. Behold how great the forest is set aflame by such a small fire. In other words, it only sp- takes a spark to get a fire going. Right? Remember that song from, what, the 70s? Uh, Pass it on. Wasn't it Pass it on? It only takes a... Okay. That's it. I'm not singing anymore. Uh, we're going to keep that. The, uh, verse 6 says, And the tongue is a fire, and a very, uh, uh, the very world of iniquity. The tongue is set... Among our members as that which defiles the whole body and sets on fire the course of our life and is set on fire by hell. For every species of beasts, birds, and reptiles uh, and creatures of the sea is tamed and has been tamed by the human race. In other words, we can tame things that are huge. That are huge. You know, most of us have been to the circus and seen lions and tigers and bears. Oh my! Right? And they're trained. And we can't train that little thing in our mouth. That's probably less than the size of a bologna sandwich. You know? We can't tame that thing. It's, it's horrible. And James goes on. But no one can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil and full of deadly poison. Just think about that. With it we bless our Lord and Father. We say wonderful, great, gracious prayers. And then with it we curse men. It's kind of as in your face as possibly can be who have been made in the likeness of God. We bless God and curse His creation with the same mouth. Verse 10 says, From the same mouth come both blessings and cursings. My brethren, these things ought not to be this way. In other words, brothers, stop letting the tongue be in control. Does a fountain send out from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Bitter waters? Never ever seen a fountain? You go out here in, in the foyer and you go drink something at a fountain. Does it come out fresh water and then salt water and fresh water and salt water? You'd say, no, I wouldn't drink salt water because why? You may just die. 
You want to drink fresh water. So the fountain doesn't have both, so why does your mouth spew both? Can a fig tree, I forgot to put this one in, my brethren produce olives, uh, or a vine produce figs? Neither can salt water produce fresh. In other words, you are a product of what you're saying. You've got to be held accountable for your words. And it's important for us to see that. Um, I want to give two tidbits, and we're going to go back to Matthew and finish real quick. A tamed tongue proves one's dependence on God. I think that's my proverb for this morning. If you have a tamed tongue, it proves one's dependence on God. That's why we're going to go back to Matthew and see. That's what he's saying. As we finish chapter 5, verse 23 and 24. The tongue is untamable, powerful, and death-dealing instrument of man's sin nature. We've got to understand what the tongue is and that God says we have power over that. We cannot allow it to have power over us. So basically, take your time when dealing with things that, that you know will aggravate you or things that are already aggravated and things you need to say. Um, sometimes write down words and then rewrite them before you say anything. Sometimes do what I do. Call my wife, let her talk for you. No, I mean, it just happens. Sometimes you got to know that you're going to say the wrong thing. No matter what you say, it's going to be taken wrong and you need somebody else that has a little different touch. And that way she gets blamed. It's her fault. That's how I'm thinking. Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. Let's kind of wrap up where I want to go this morning. And you can see how all this will tie in prayerfully. Jesus in verse 23, Matthew 5, 23, gives some hypothetical situations. Um, Somebody once came up to me and says, uh, for instance, um, if, if verse 23 says, if you therefore have, are presenting your offering at the altar, and remember your brother has something against you, leave your offering there before the altar and go your way. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and present your offering. Now what Jesus is dealing with is a hypothetical situation in the guise of an understanding of what murder is about. What? Now, first of all, let me say this. Do not come up to me or anybody else and say, before I give my offering, I've got to make it right with you. That's not, that's not the application of this passage. Um, it has nothing to do with that. None of us give an offering. An offering basically was presenting something to God that God would accept and, be, and grant forgiveness or grant relationship or grant fellowship with whatever the offering might be. And you were going to God with something and you were doing it for God, but you weren't even fixing a human relationship. That's what he's saying. Fix the human before you fin- try and fi- do what you're supposed to do with God. So otherwise, the offering that you were presenting to God was just a ritual, just a doing. So uh, don't do that. Don't go through the motions um, without your fully wanting to serve God. That's that's the basic thing. Because what's going on before this? What causes the uh, what Jesus is dealing with is the mental attitude, the inward condition of people who basically have murderous thoughts. Um, and he's saying, here's where some of it needs to begin and to be dealt with. And then he says, secondly, he deals with this, make friends quickly. Uh, some of you are really good at this, but this is a fix for dealing with how to reconcile with people. It doesn't say, uh, basically, uh, be friendly. It says make friends. Now, that's hard because it's a two-way street. And that means you're going to have to have a little uh, touch that's, that's important for that situation. Sometimes we can't. 
But this isn't saying we have to do all these things all the time. It's saying this is the mental attitude. Be, be friendly. Make them quickly with an opponent at law. Now, I don't know how many of you have gone to law and somebody's taking you to court. Now, that would irritate me. I've never, ta- I've never been taken to court. I have taken people to court. And I wanted to irritate them. I'm just as easy as that. My purpose was to get my way. They had stolen some money and I was going to get my way. But I'm going to tell you something. The Lord worked it out that we became friends and we fixed the situation and he never gave me the money back, but we got through building my house and he helped walk through some issues that needed to be dealt with and he heard the gospel because I didn't allow the anger that was in me to fester and I dealt with it and dealt with him. Um, but it says, make friends with an opponent while law, while you, uh, you're with them in the way in order that your opponent may be uh, may not deliver you to the judge and the judge to the officer and thrown into prison. Truly I say to you, you shall not come out of there until you paid the last cent. So basically he's dealing with the, with the fix um, in, in trying to get the situation remedied the best he can. And how to handle an opponent is to make reconciliation. We know that. But in, in what we call the church age in times like that, it's not always probable and possible but the right thing to do the godly thing to do is this is your aim right that's what god wants us to do and the mental attitude needs to deal with that so here's what i want to do i want to wrap up this little section because next week i really want to uh, spend two days after valentine's on divorce (laughs) i just think god's got a sense of humor what to do with an adversary? So here's what, here's what we, we want to take some application out of this. This is what I'm doing. I know this section isn't meant for application to start with, but I'm going to give, give us some anyway. Uh, when you have an adversary, how many of you think well of them? I, I, I think it's human nature to say, you know, if they die tomorrow, I would not worry. I would not attend their funeral. Who cares? But God wants us to think his thoughts. And God says, we got this in the first class, God's desires for all men to be saved. And that was the thing that kind of hit me at the heart of the issue because I had so many things were going on, rebuilding our house after Hurricane Andrew. And I just, this contractor and I were, I was not happy with him. And I was trying to find a way he would fit in my foundation. I'm not, I'm telling you the truth. But God says, this man's not saved. And I spent, I don't know how many hours, at night in my empty shell of a house with him standing there giving him the gospel. You don't know what that took. I wanted to sort of give him the gospel before I gave him his death sentence. You want to see the Lord tonight? This is how. But it took a lot. But here's the interesting thing, and I think this is also cuts to the quick. Do it quickly. Do it quickly. Don't wait on it. Don't let it fester. Don't let it hanker you. Seek a settlement. Find out how to work out the situation that that works out for both parties. Don't be a doormat, but at the same time, be welcoming. Get what I'm saying? Thirdly, fourthly, do not harm the opponent. Boy, I've... that's hard. Sometimes. Sometimes it's not. Because sometimes you're the opponent. Pay back every penny. If it's a situation that needs to be dealt with, Pay it back. It may take time. Pay it back. Assume the opponent has rights. That's hard. Especially if the opponent's already taken away some of your rights. Have a spirit of reconciliation. As offended adversary is your right, as an offended adversary is, is, 
is your right. It is your right. And responsibility to repair the situation. You've got to do it. I know it sounds terrible, but you, you, there's ways to do this. Um, and I think that's what God wants us to do. Now, I will say this as nice as I can. Do not go back tonight and say, well, I've had this problem with this person 40 years ago. I need to find them in the Internet, call them up and rehab. Don't do that. Don't, don't, no, don't do that. Because that's the craziest thing. It's about as crazy as what I heard when I'm going to give you next week on divorce and remarriage. Don't do crazy things that just said, no. Now, today, this is how you start. This is what we deal with today. If you cannot reconcile with your fellow man, how can you live in harmony with God you have offended? You've offended God. Do you realize your offense to God is greater than any offense any man's ever given you or you've given any man? Do you know that? Okay. Live in peace. Hot dog, that's one of the hardest things. In the middle of 1 Corinthians chapter 7, when it's talking about divorce, it, Paul calls the people to live in peace above all. Would you like to live in the... Never mind. The point is, live in peace. And then I wrote in what? Do this what? Quickly. Is that redundant? The scribes and Pharisees did not have the righteousness the kingdom required. If those who wanted the righteousness to enter the kingdom, one had to be right with God who they offended. And God said what? Get right with me. The external act of murder is capped by how we handle all interpersonal relationships. All reflect the high esteem we have for, the, for human life. All life. And lastly, I think that's the last. Yes. Handle problems before they become appalling, shocking, and insurmountable. And don't let them fester. I don't know how clear I could be on that last one. We as believers sometimes let things fester. And people have come in to me and come up to me and said, you know, for 30 years this has been grating on my nerves what this person has done. No, let's deal with it. Let's deal with it. Let's, let's get it done. Let's move on. Because why? You're going to go to bed and you're going to think about it. You're going to wake up at 3 o'clock in the morning and say, hmm. Then you're going to think about it the next day and then you're going to start devising things that, that are really bad. And God says, thou shalt not what? Murder. And this is what leads to this, is the mental uh, capacity that people have to do each other under. Uh, next week, we're going to pick up with verse 27 through 32. Here's what I'm going to ask. No, I'm not going to ask for your prayer, because that would, it would be a week and a half late. <laughs> um, I will ask you, though, to read it ahead of time, spend time in, in that word. And here's what I want. I don't know how far we'll get next week or maybe the week after, write down questions that you have in this section, because there's going to be a hundred questions. Because I got a, listen, I showed Lizzie last night, on my side of the desk in my office, I got a stack of papers about, what, about two inches thick, all on these verses, of questions I've asked. Now, and I've studied this passage I, at least three times before this, okay? And now I got a stack of questions. And now what I'm going to think I'm going to do is I'll let you ask one, and if it's the one I want to field, I will field it, because this has got to be a Q&A at the end of this. Because I'm going to tell you something. There's four things you're going to have to know about Scripture. You may have an answer. You may possibly have an answer. You probably have an answer. And sometimes you just don't have an answer. And as a pastor, I don't want to have the last one. You don't know how hard that is to say, I don't have an answer. So pray for me, and I'll pray for you. And we're going to stand and... Uh, be dismissed. Father, we're thankful for this morning. A, a lot of information we dealt with, but most of all, 
uh, most predominantly, we need to be uh, people who capture our tongues, that deal uh, correctly, say the right things, and, and sometimes step back and say nothing. What I'm reminded of so often is Job's friends. Some of their information was spot on, but it was the wrong situation and the wrong person. Sometimes they were just narcissistic and, and it was all about themselves. And Father, that's what comes across sometimes as we as believers sometimes just talk too much. And Father, help us to, to be kind of believers that say the right things, have the correct answers, and that we use our tongue mostly to give out the word and give out the gospel. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be dismissed.